the most successful open source projects are those who are made by developers for developers. So you really understand the pain. And up to this day, we don't have even one salesperson in the field, not even one. The first thing that we heard about JFrog, even before we had commercial success, was the community saying, once you leap forward, you won't go back. This is where the spark kind of hit our mind and we established JFrog. Every entrepreneur that will tell you that acquiring a company and merge it into the mothership comes with zero challenges is either disconnected from his organization or lying. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. As part of our Israeli Founder Series, I am happy to welcome my GGV colleague, Oren Younger, as today's guest host. Thank you. Awesome to be here. Yeah, we're excited. And we're really thrilled to welcome another super impressive Israeli founder to the show, Shlomi Ben Chaim. How'd I do on that? Ooh, wow. Okay. <laughs> He's the co-founder and CEO of JFrog. JFrog is the creator of the Universal DevOps platform. The company was founded in 2008 and provides the world's first universal artifact management platform, or artifactory, and has ushered in a new era of DevOps, the continuous update. JFrog's become uh, the database of DevOps and a de facto standard in release and update management, and we know a lot of listeners on the show are very up to speed on what's going on in, in, the, in the software infrastructure world, and JFrog's actually is obviously really in the center of, uh, of all the changes going on in software. So Shalomi, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Wow. Thank you guys for joining me at the Swamp, Oren, Glenn. Thank yeah. you. We're excited to be here at the Swamp. We want to first rewind to your early days, even prior to starting JFrog, when you were in the Israeli Air Force. How did your military service influence your startup mentality? And when did you realize that you were going to be a company founder someday? That's a great question. Um, I think that the answer, if you will ask my wife and daughter, the answer would be different. Uh, but after 12 years in the Israeli Air Force, I think that Two things that I actually took from these very important years at the service was, number one, if you debrief, you can always learn and improve. And the second thing, discipline is everything. If you focus, if you're disciplined, you deliver. Maybe it will take more time, but you will be persistent and focus. So after leaving the military, you became a, a founder right away. I know you, you've, this, is, this is not your first company that you founded. Was your first action after leaving the military professionally to found, a, found your first company, or did you do something before that? So I left the Israeli Air Force at the year 2000, at the beginning of 2000. Okay. So if you remember the year 2000, I'm celebrating 50 next, next week, so I remember those days as well. But uh, Unfortunately, I got you beat, but just by a little bit. <laughs> so you remember the <laughs> Yes, I remember. But every single person in Israel had a startup. Every single person in the world had a startup that day. So when I left the Air Force, I got few offers 
to join an Israeli small, very early beginning startups, but one of them was more appealing than the others. Actually, that was an offer that I got from my sister mm. that uh, managed an Israeli startup that was driven by the uh, Java technology that was just stepping into enterprise. And she asked me to join the journey. And this is how I met Fred Simon, my co-founder at JFrog, that was also the co-founder of Alpha CSP, the first company that I joined. Got it. Cool. So, so you co-founded JFrog at 08, another great year. Um, <laughs> yeah, together you, with, you know how to pick up Shlovi. <laughs> together with uh, Fred and Yoav Landman, how did you meet Yoav and how did you join the bundle and why did you decide to start the company specifically in the middle of the financial crisis? Yeah, Oren, first of all, you have a point. Three months after we founded Alpha CSP in Israel, the dot-coms crisis started. And three months after we founded JFrog in 2008, the subprime and the, the, the 2008 crisis started. So but you created this. Yeah, <laughs> people just ask us to stop and, and uh, founding companies. Fred and Yav, this is by far the most important key of success uh, for me as an entrepreneur in JFrog. I met both of them, obviously, in Alpha CSP. Yav and Fred were the technical managers of Alpha CSP when I was the CEO of the company after the acquisition in 2005. They were leading Alpha CSP from technical perspective, and I, I led the business perspective. This is how we met. And our relationship goes back uh, 19 years, almost as far as I married. Cool. So, so JFrog is a unicorn with many thousands of customers, likes of Google, Amazon, and even Netflix, which we just learned was, <laughs> was a pretty early customer. Could you tell us a little bit about that? And even more broadly, could you tell us about what JFrog does and what was life before Artifactory? Yeah, so, so remember, the year of 2008 was at least five years before the phrase DevOps was coined. Yeah. I think Forrester was the, the first report that mentioned Dev and Ops together in one phrase. Uh, so in 2008, when you come to the developers community and you say, guys, there is another thing that we need to be focused on, that was tough. But we realized that there would be more software and organization will be judged by how fast and how secure they will deliver software. And therefore, Yoav uh, started an open source project called Artifactory to manage a different asset and not just your source code, but the binaries, the mm -hmm. software packages. And with a completely different mindset to manage a different asset from the development phase to the real time, to the runtime phase. And um, with that, we started our journey. You mentioned Netflix. Um, awesome company with great technologies, one of the early adopters in the world that started to play around with Artifactory and manage binaries was an architect in Netflix. And the moment we launched the first commercial version of Artifactory, he was our first customer. That's really cool. Maybe we could double-click a little bit on open source and what it's meant to you as a, as a, as a company here at JFrog. Obviously, it sounds like really the company started as an open source project. Do you think it was the vision from day one after building that open source that you'd put a company around it? Or was it more, hey, the world needs this open source, and then you realize the open source is actually pretty popular, maybe, maybe there are some commercial things we can do with it? That's a great question. I think that every company with open source roots 
will probably have a different answer for yeah. that. But the most successful open source projects are those who are made by developers for developers. So you really understand the pain. And when you have started Artifactory, it was not around establishing a company. It was not around founding JFrog. It was literally solving the pain of developers. Because when you have thousands of packages being imported per day to your organization from the open source ocean, uh, you need to manage it differently. And uh, it started as a proxy, and then together with Fred, they build a much smarter machine that serves developers in their day-to-day tasks and solve their pain with the amount of software and especially open source software. So there were two rules that we had to follow at the beginning. The first rule is to respect the open source behavior. Yep. You don't go after those developers, not with marketing and no sales. And up to this day, we don't have even one salesperson in the field, not even one. And the second thing... That's remarkable. Given how you guys have scaled, that, that is truly remarkable. Thank you. And the second rule that you have to follow to respect the code of behavior in the open source arena is that you should be focused on your user, not on the technology. Don't try to educate the community, Mm -hmm. serve the community. And I think that what Artifactory managed to bring is a tool that removed the pain. And, And the first thing that we heard about JFrog, even before we had the commercial success, was the community saying, once you leap forward, you won't go back. That for us was the biggest compliment from the community. Leap like a frog forward? Of course. Okay, all right, <laughs> just checking. Um, so, I mean, we're going back in time here. This is, this is more than a decade ago that the open source artifactory is gaining popularity. When did the spark to build a commercial company come for you guys? Because, you know, we're lucky enough to have been invested in, in HashiCorp from the early days, and that's 2000 really 14 before they even thought about commercializing. So you guys were really early, and this is, this is still brand new science, like commercializing open source. So you know, how did that spark occur, and then how did you figure out, like, how do you build a business model around, around an open source project? Well, I, I think those two different questions, okay. uh, I'll try to address that. First of all, HashiCorp, what an awesome company, congrats. Thanks. We, we, we in, feel really fortunate to be involved. We've had we've had Dave and, and Mitchell uh, on the show. We'll have Armand, uh, one of the other co-founders, on soon. But yeah, it's been an amazing ride to watch them go. But you guys have have benefited from a lot of the same dynamics in the market. Thank you. And and, and yes, we we are happy customers of Hashi, and we see them around because at the end of the day, we are selling to the same persona and interacting with the same community. But when you look at the, um, the first question was, when did we realize that there is a potential business that can come out from, from Artifactory success? I think that one thing that you track is the number of users and downloads of mm-hmm. your product. This is, back then, was impressive, but not something that will let you step out of your comfort zone and kind of establishing a company. The one thing that caught our attention was the organizations that adopted Artifactory. Mm, Artifactory open source was adopted by the enterprise from day one because it's solving the pain of the enterprise. And back then, developers would still host and manage their binaries called 
in the source code machines, source code repositories. But only if you were an enterprise at the size of Netflix and Cisco and those companies, you would understand what's the pain and you would look and you would search for a tool like Artifactory. The moment we saw the logos behind the downloads, this is where the spark kind of hit our, our mind and we established JFOB. And how have you decided, either then, now, and everywhere in between, how have you decided what is an open source and what should be, you know, what features or functions should be closed or commercial? So, first of all, it's a journey. That there is no specific point in time that you decide, and from that point, you, you just, you know, kind of follow the same decision. I think that it's kind of a, a dialogue between you and the community, and you see what works and what doesn't work. But the one thing that you see in the industry today is that open source is kind of split between two different practices. The first one is an open source that is managed by the company for the community. And the second one is open source that is managed by the community, and maybe there is a company that provides services on top of it and go with, with the community. Right. I think that uh, it was clear to us, not just because of the fact that you know, we are developers producing something for developers, it was also clear to us that what we are coming with to the market is so new that if we will not raise this flag and insist on changing not just the tools landscape, but also the methodologies, it will not catch up. And most of the open source development that we did, we did with our own team. Makes sense. So you once said that it took a really slow elevator or a really tall high rise for you to complete your initial <laughs> elevator pitch. Why was that and did it change with time? Well, very embarrassing story. Actually, this, uh, this sentence was said to us by our first investor, Gemini. Yossi Sela, great partner, invested in JFOG in 2012. Uh, we were so excited sitting on each of these VCs meeting, but over a hundred of them told us no. And Yossi at some point just said, guys, you don't have an elevator pitch. It's either a very old elevator or a very tall building. And uh, the main reason for that is that when you try to describe something that doesn't exist, people just don't get it. And this is something that I am keep on quoting because it reminds me not just the story of JFOG, but also uh, the roots and where we came from. That's cool. So you and your co-founders funded the company for the first four years of existence and only raised venture capital money in 2012. Why did it take you four years? And knowing what you know now, would you have done things differently? Well, first off, we raised, I think, half a million dollars from seed money, uh, angels that supported us. None of them really understood what is it that we are pushing and passionate about, but all of them had faith in, in us as a team. And yes, uh, Yoav, Fred, and myself, we sponsored uh, the company and we started to generate sales from day one. But you ask about the military service and the discipline, you ask about Alpha CSP. This was also three guys that saw enough. They were not the guys that just stepped out of college. We, we had a company, we raised money, we sold the company. We were acquired, we merged a company, and one thing that I learned, and I think that that was the right 
first step with JFrog, that if you really want to build a business, build a business that can also sell and generate revenues, that can build partnership that are meaningful for the market, and build a differentiator with a product that can scale and be superior as a technology. And this is what we wanted to prove first before we went and raised money. We remember the days of raising money too fast with Alpha CSP. Mm. We didn't want to raise too fast again. And only in 2011, we started to seek for, for capital. I wouldn't change that, by the way, to answer your question. <laughs> mm. It's become a lot easier for you to raise money. Probably it was pretty hard at the beginning. But uh, obviously with the success you've had, and, and also I think the recognition of the world of how the, every company in the world is becoming a software company and how the imperative of releasing quickly and, and securely and getting to your customer fast is important. And obviously you guys play right into that. Investors have figured it out. It took us a little while, but we figured it out that you're a really important company. You mentioned earlier that you don't, to this day, have any salespeople in the field. That's really interesting because you got some big customers, and usually we associate, you know, enterprisey like customers with enterprise sales forces. So how do you close that gap? How have you been able to do that? First off, regarding raising money, I think that Series A is always difficult because you have to prove something that doesn't have any proof in in your balance sheet yet. Yep. And it took us almost three years to raise $3 million and three weeks to raise $165 million <laughs> in our CSD. So uh, yes, it was a, a bit different. We are now a company that serves uh, almost 6,000 customers, the majority of the Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 1000, our customer of JFrog. I'm very honored to have the top 10 on, on every industry is, uh, is an enterprise customer of JFrog. Incredible. And thank you. Um, and our team work very, very hard for our product and R&D to support and sales and marketing team to make this happen. But your question was about the field sales. And I think that once you build a smart funnel within the product that shows the value to the potential user, you actually fuel the top of the funnel with the technology you provide. And then you have to serve them better with the service around it from the moment the customer journey starts. And this is what we managed to do with JFrog. At the beginning, we were just um, a Java repository, mm -hmm. just for Java developers. And when we said that we will be the universal solution for all type of developers, it was the joke of, of the industry. What do you mean? What do you mean repository for all languages? And we said, I don't want to educate you whether you want to use Java or .NET or, or Docker or RPM. I will just provide you with a universal solution. And we put that not just on paper or on the website, but into the UI so developers will see the value and they saw it. And this is how we started to scale. The second leap was providing an enterprise solution for the enterprise, something that is highly available with zero downtime. And the enterprise saw that. And the third leap was multi-product, so not just Artifactory, but also the SecOp solution on top of it, and also the distribution solution on top of it. And our users saw that and scaled. And um, up until today, we have customer success team that expand the portfolio and the usage of our existing customers. 
and what we call the warriors, which are the guys that are going after the new users. All of it is inbound and inside sales. Okay, so the warriors are still inside sellers, so yes. they're, they're using phone and Zoom and other ways to get... No phone, uh, Zoom only if, if there is a technical session to take. We only interact with you. Remember, we are coming from the open source yep. background, so we will only reach out to you if you reached out to us telling us, I want to try Artifactory oh. or X-Ray or Bintray or other products. Got it, okay. And people who are reaching out to you are typically already users and familiar with your open source? Or running a trial. Got it, okay. And it sounds like then you've invested in, in customer success as well. How do you manage a customer success team in a model like this? Do, do you manage that team on, like are they gold on trying to uh, generate more revenue out of existing accounts or, or do you look at customer satisfaction scores or NPS or some other way? Like, How do you judge mm-hmm. how success is doing for you? You know, Glenn, uh, we have something we call the the codex, the J4 codex. Mm. This is the book of values. And the second value in this codex, by the way, written by the frogs themselves, not the management, but by the employees, is community and customer happiness. We never use the word satisfaction. Satisfaction belongs to different industries. And I think that um, our customer success team is special because of two reasons. Number one, it's splitted between support and customer's care. So our support team is not part of sales because they have to be R&D level support. They have to be more technical than the regular support team. And the second thing is that our customer success team is focusing on giving you ideas of how you can be more efficient, faster, more secure, and provide you with the value and not just with pushing more of what you already have. That's also explain the very, very impressive low churn that we have. We have under 3% churn a year. That's uh, incredible. That's the kind of relationship and the kind of partnership that we build with our community and customers. That is an amazing statistic, first of all. And it, it suggests like no matter how great your success team is, part of the magic here is just people love the software. Right. I mean, there's only so much that people can do. The software itself has to be great for you to have that kind of retention. Especially when you sell to software developers and DevOps engineers. Uh, yeah. You have technical people on the other side of the PO. Known to be slightly finicky themselves. So <laughs> and they know, yeah. Also, given that you're an open source company, right? people can use the software around the world. And yes, you started the company in Israel, but you've become a pretty global company pretty fast. So tell us what that has been like. You know, open source is an enabler, I guess, because you've got users all over the world. But you eventually you moved to the U.S. What was that all about? And now you've got swamps in lots of different places, not just in uh, in Israel. So maybe walk us through the the journey of being a global company. Well. First of all, it's a journey that we are still on. We are expanding uh, JFrog with swamps all over the world, as you mentioned. We currently have 10 different offices worldwide. We are operating from seven different countries, over 550 employees worldwide. Still, the tech center, R&D and product is based in Israel. Uh, The majority of our team is based in Israel. And the business headquarter is, is here in the Silicon Valley in Sunnyvale. In 2013, we have realized that what we follow 
is right, not just in terms of the technology, but also in terms of the business. You have to be closer to the community. You have to be closer to your customers. And Fred Simon, my co-founder, and myself, uh, we moved here in uh, 2013 with our back to Israel. And we started to build JFrog US in order to be closer to our market. 70% of our revenues, 70% of our users, both in cloud and on-prem, is coming from North America. So for us, it was natural. But the one thing that it completely changed in, in JFrog was how focused we are and how ahead of the curve we are with uh, providing the community with what they need. When you really live in the same place mm. that your customers and users live, uh, you learn much faster and you react much faster if you are a good listener. Cool. So JFrog isn't a public company yet, but maybe it will be one day. Mm-hmm. Do you think an IPO would change a lot for the company? Well, you tell me, you have more experience <laughs> with companies that went public. I, for me, it would be maybe the first one. I hear that it will change a lot. I think that um, today's market is an amazing platform for companies that want to stay independent and fulfill their vision to ride on. But going public, as you know it, and I know it, it's a moment in time. It's a milestone in the lifetime of a, of a company. And I hope that it will serve us right as, as we scale the company. What we hear from, from the market is that a lot has been changed in the last year. The Wall Street investors want to see um, not just growth, uh, which we are happy and honored to have this growth, but also they want to see path to profitability mm-hmm. and liquidity and cash flow positive companies. And they also want to see a vision that takes you beyond the next year. They want to see something that the change, the landscape of software infrastructure. And I think that JFrog has checked all three boxes. Um, if we will go public or not, we'll see. Well, I, for one, I like the three boxes that you, you point out. I think you do have very strong checks in all of those boxes. So when you go public, I'm buying the stock, <laughs> just so you know. Thank you. So you've acquired five companies to date, if I'm not mistaken. How did you go about identifying these companies and have you had any integration challenges getting those companies JFrogged? Well, every entrepreneur that will tell you that acquiring a company and merge it into the mothership comes with zero challenges is either disconnected from his organization or lying. It's very challenging. It's very challenging because there are two things that you have to make sure that you are aligned with. Number one is the strategy, the technology strategy and the market strategy, and number two is the culture. And in both of them, we are very, very focused Mm -hmm. in JFOG, very focused. We acquired five different companies. Uh, Three of them were technology-based acquisitions. Conan is the open source package manager for C++, actually the biggest community in the world for C++, and Mm -hmm. the bridge for the C++ developers to step into the modern DevOps days. Mm -hmm. In a world of IoT, and dev-to-device future, this will be a significant, significant differentiator that JFrog is betting on. We acquired uh, CloudMunch, 
which uh, has built a dashboard that oversees the pipeline from your Git repository to your Kubernetes and provide you with visibility into the pipeline. And for the first time two years ago, we dared to aim to the manager that want to know more than just telling him, yeah, 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 Jenkins, Artifactory, and, and Git, uh, but to see some metrics. And this is what we uh, had in mind when we acquired CloudMunch. And the latest one, just a year ago, we acquired Cheaperbell, a cloud-native CI-CD tool mm. that we merge and build as JFOG pipeline to manage all the automation within the JFOG platform. So those were the three technology companies. We also acquired Demon and Trainologic to join their team, a team of professionals to JFOG. And... Um, Inorganic growth is a muscle that uh, company at scale and late stage that um, look at you know controlling its own destiny. It's a muscle that you have to develop, and and we are learning from one acquisition to another, from one leap to another. Another question for you um, about Israel. You know, we we've been investing uh, more aggressively in the Israeli market. Uh, obviously, it's where you're from, and and you have a lot of experience on the ground there, and are now growing a global company. One of our observations we were chatting about earlier is, you know, in past generations, the Israeli entrepreneurs who were successful were achieving great outcomes, but fairly modest in size, not unicorn-type outcomes. 100 million, 200 million, 300 million were great outcomes in, you know, even a decade ago. It's our observation now there are a lot more companies, yourselves included, that have Israeli roots that are building companies with much bigger aspirations and potential than those, those prior outcomes. Or and I were looking at the data, there's something like 35 or so Israeli unicorns right now, but half of them have been minted as unicorns in the last year. So it, there's something accelerating, something's going on, and I'm curious to get your take on why that's happening and, and where do you think it, it heads from here? Well, Glenn, first of all, it's a great observation, and obviously I'm biased because uh, my roots are Israelis. But I'm, I'm looking at this phenomena from first hand in the past 10 years, and I think that the main change happened in the past uh, 10 years. Uh, this decade was um, a completely shift in how an Israeli entrepreneur is thinking. Putting unicorns and decacorns and all kinds of labels aside, because I think that, uh, well, I never saw a unicorn, a real one. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think that uh, a company that can scale to sell in a billion dollar uh, ARR revenue or whatever we want to measure is considered to be more than just a great technology or just a great product. It's a path that this company probably paved for the rest of the market. Mm -hmm. When I grew up in Israel, I was educated to think that, you know, Israel is small. The moment you can, you have to look outside. Israel market is not big enough for you to build a company. And we were Trading with our minds, an idea, a technology, a practice that we bought from the army, from the military service or whatever. Then the next generation was great products, products like Waze that you know, got acquired in great number by Google or other products. And the last generation that I'm watching, just like you, and thank you for including me in, in this generation, are the entrepreneurs that belong to a global world Mm. That where you sit means nothing if you dare to leap over borders. And I think that uh, Israeli entrepreneurs, as others, by the way, dare to think that they can bring or build something that is greater than just the next exit 
of the next M&A. Not to say that M&As are not great, but if you have something that scales, if you have something that dramatically changes the way the world works, you should be brave enough and responsible enough to take the, the full journey and not uh, to cash out in the middle. All right. Well, uh, talking about not cashing out in the middle, uh, we are towards the end of our episode, Shlomi, and so you are in the hot seat for our speed round. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, it's going to get warm in the swamp. Well, DevOps is all about speed. Let's, <laughs> okay. let's see. There you go. We... First question, tell us about your favorite book or anything you've read that you recommend to other founders. Start with why Simon Sink. Definitely the most important book that uh, helped me manage JFOG clearly and more focused. Okay, great. Piece of advice you wish you had received before founding JFrog. Scaling is hard and it's painful and you will feel it in your bones and you will not sleep at night. And if you think that uh, being a unicorn is fun, <laughs> go visit <laughs> some, some other places that, uh, that fail. Okay, uh, here's the real important one. We're here in Silicon Valley. Good falafel and shawarma are much harder to come by here. So where in Israel do you like to go when you're looking for that great shawarma or falafel? <laughs> uh, well, I grew up in, in a small town called Hoda Sharon. Um, there is, a, I think, a 10 by 10 booth there. Uh, it's called Falafel Kaduri, a blue booth that you can see from the main road. Four families are walking in this one very small falafel booth. But um, it's not just the best falafel that I know in Israel. It's also kind of throw me back 30, 40 years ago when that was a delicious kind of uh, pita bread with the treasure inside. <laughs> uh, so falafel kaduri is You know what we love far. is whenever we ask an Israeli where their favorite falafel place is, they have one of two answers. Either they say hakosem. Hakosem. Uh, <laughs> or they say... The magician. Right, that's right. Or they say... It's this really, really, really small place that you've never heard of. There's something about like the smaller the place, the better the falafel. So next time we go to Israel, Orin, let's go to a real small place. Next time you go to Israel, um, falafel is on me. Falafel Kadori. That's very nice of you. We're going to take you up on that. Well, you've been super generous and gracious with your time today, uh, Shlomi. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit about your journey and the JFrog journey with us today. I know people are going to love hearing about it, and we're just super excited to see where it goes from here. Thank you guys for visiting us uh, at the swamp and keep your eyes on the frogs. We will make you proud. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages 6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. 
firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at ggvcapital or ggvcapital on WeChat. <laughs>